Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 39. Last week, I covered the three pharaohs who followed Tut, specifically I, Horemheb, and Ramses I, the three of which ruled from 1323 to 1290 BC. After Ramses was his son, Seti I, who I'll begin this episode with, so let's get started. Seti I ruled from 1290 to 1279 BC, so not really a long time, but by his contemporary standards, it was the longest in several iterations of rulers. There is the not well-supported theory that he may have ruled for another four years, but most likely it was only 11. Like I said, he was the son of Ramses I and named after his grandfather. All of this was during the 19th dynasty. Seti continued the reforms of the several post-Akhenaten rulers of reaffirming the traditional religion and re-establishing a more central government, in his case centered around Memphis. And while this push had been going on for several pharaohs, the rapid succession of leaders and uncertainty brought on by the change was a definite headwind. Seti also needed to re-establish Egypt as the occupier of Canaan and Syria. And of course, if you subscribe to the 1450 BC Exodus date, this would have Egypt ruling over Canaan as the Israelites were slowly establishing their cities there. Essentially at this time, the general area was being fought over by the Egyptians and the Hittites. The two empires would meet several times on the battlefield, but there was never a decisive victory, and neither would completely defeat the other. Despite this, the Egyptians did gain territory. Internally, Seti embarked on major construction projects, so many that he needed a new quarry for the material for all of the obelisks and colossal statues he initiated. And in his case, the word initiated is rather appropriate. Due to his short reign, most would be completed by his son, and these were mostly the typical monuments, noting his accomplishments. In Seti's case, the accomplishments includes battles in Western Asia, Libya, and Nubia, and some of these started early. In his first year, he led his armies along what was known as the Horus Military Road. This was a coastal road that led from the Egyptian Nile Delta along the northern coast of the Sinai Peninsula and ended somewhere in Canaan, believed to be more specifically in the area of the Gaza Strip. This road was a series of military forts, each apparently equipped with a well. All of these forts are inscribed in great detail in the king's war scenes at the Karnak Temple. From these inscriptions, we learn that the king's army fought the local Bedouins called the Shasu. In Canaan, he received tributes from some of the city-states he visited. Other city-states were not as considerate and had to be captured. but they were apparently easily defeated. These included Bethshan and Yinoam. Eventually, some 300 or so years later, Bethshan would be ruled by King David. The location of Yinoam has been lost to history, and that's unfortunate as the attack on Yinoam is illustrated in his war scenes at Karnak. The Battle of Bethshan, along with others, are not inscribed probably because the king himself did not participate, allowing his army to do the dirty work. 
His first year campaign continued to Lebanon. It was here that the king received the surrender of the local chieftains. These surrendering leaders would offer the legendary Lebanese cedar as tribute. Sometime later, in the exact time is unknown, but at some point, Seti defeated Libyan tribesmen who invaded Egypt's western border. They were defeated, but apparently not conquered, as these Libyans would continue to menace the Egyptians. But the true threat wouldn't come for close to another hundred years. More on that in a future episode. For now, think of the Libyans as being similar to the Nubians. And while we're on the subject, Seti's army would put down a minor Nubian rebellion. Again. Seti did not personally lead this campaign, but it's possible his son and crown prince, Ramses II, did participate. Historians consider Seti's supreme accomplishment to be the Egyptian recapture of the Syrian town of Kadesh in 1306 BC. Kadesh had been controlled by the Hittites for about 50 years, since Egypt was ruled by Akhenaten. Tut and Haramab both had tried and failed to recapture the city from the Hittites, but it was Seti who was successful and defeated the Hittite army that tried to defend it. He victoriously entered the city together with his son, Ramses II, and erected a victory stele at the site. But his triumph was short-lived. Upon his return to Egypt, the Hittite king, Mursili II, sent his army south, retaking Kadesh and fortifying it. Some years later, it would be the site of the legendary Battle of Kadesh between the Hittites and Egyptians. More on that later. Overall, Seti is thought to have restored the international prominence of the Egyptian Empire, a status that was lost under the rule of Akhenaten, especially to the north and east of the Egyptian homeland. The rulers that followed after Akhenaten had made several military incursions into the area, but to no avail, as demonstrated by the Armana letters, especially those received from former allies in the region. Just think back to when I covered how Akhenaten ignored their pleas for help as they were being overrun by the Hittites. In perhaps his ninth year, Seti appointed his son, Ramses II, as his successor. Not that there was much doubt. What there is doubt and debate about is if Ramses served as co-regent prior to his father's death. Most evidence points towards the younger being a highly regarded crown prince, while his father ruled alone. Seti's tomb in the Valley of the Kings was found in 1817. It is the longest at 446 feet, or 136 meters, as well as the deepest of all the New Kingdom royal tombs found at the location. But his mummy would not be uncovered for another 60 or so years. At least it was there, and not in Canada. But his giant sarcophagus made it halfway to Canada, as it is currently in a museum in London. And the story of how it got there is worth a minute. John Soane, a British architect, purchased the sarcophagus for an expedition in his collection in 1824. Now, he was not the original intended buyer, as the British Museum refused to pay the £2,000 sterling asked by the seller. When the piece first arrived at Soane's museum, its alabaster was pure white, 
and inlaid with blue copper sulfate. But the close to two centuries in the British climate has taken its toll. The alabaster has darkened to a buff color, while absorbing moisture from the humid air has caused the inlay material to loosen and fall out, in some cases disappearing entirely. And Seti's mummy was not found in the sarcophagus. His mummy was found with so many others in the Theban Nercopolis. Like the others in the royal cache, Seti's remains have undergone extensive examination. He was about 5 feet 7 inches or 170 centimeters tall. He was likely less than 40 years old when he died and may have died suddenly. The cause of his relatively early death is uncertain. And it appears to have been from natural causes as there are no apparent injuries to his body, at least not pre-mortem. His mummy has been decapitated but this likely occurred after his death by tomb robbers. The Amun priest, when the mummy was moved from its original tomb to Thebes, carefully reattached his head to his body using linen cloths. It has been theorized that he died from a disease which had affected him for years, possibly related to his heart. His heart was found placed on the right side of his body, while the usual practice at the time was to place it on the left side during the mummification process. What's unknown is if this was intentional. It could have been an oversight, or maybe an attempt to have the organ work better in the afterlife. I'm going with the mistake option, as I've seen nothing that indicates that the Egyptians could have known of any heart condition that would lead to death. I couldn't cover Seti without at least mentioning his depiction in the classic movie, The Ten Commandments. In this flick, and true to at least a portion of history, Seti was shown to be the father of Ramses, and therefore the uncle of the adopted Moses. Seti's sister, Bithia, was shown as Moses' mother. The script has Seti banishing Moses from the land after Moses causes dishonor to the royal family. A different and later movie, well, really a short series known as The Mummy, has Seti as a pharaoh who is murdered by his high priest, Imhotep. He is mentioned as the richest of all pharaohs. Of course, neither of these are historically accurate. Finally, in the 1998 animated film The Prince of Egypt, Seti is portrayed as Moses' adoptive father. He is also the pharaoh who orders the massacre of the Hebrew boys, as seen in the second chapter of the book of Exodus. And all of this gets me to Ramses II. And before starting, a little time check. According to the second most accepted date for the Exodus, the Israelites' escape occurred during this Ramses' reign. Like I covered before, the most accepted date for the Exodus is 1446 BC so roughly 200 years before Ramses. And if the Exodus occurred at this earlier date, then the 40 years of wandering would have led to settlement in the Levant, an area that was roughly under the control of the Egyptians during Ramses II's reign. So either way, this Ramses had an impact on the people found in the Old Testament. And with that, let's get started on Ramses. Ramses II ruled from 1279 to 1213 BC, so 66 years. 
which makes him the longest reigning pharaoh, at least among those whose reign lengths we actually know. Of course, there is Pepi II, and some sources list him as having reigned 94 years, but that length is highly debated. So let's just say that Ramses was the longest reigning, with an asterisk. And given his long reign, you would suspect he took the throne as a child, but in this case, you'd be mistaken, as he ascended when he was about 24 years old, so he ruled and lived until he was somewhere around 90 years old. He had been preparing for this ruling role for some time, as he was appointed crown prince by his father, Seti I, when Ramses was only about 14 years old. He is often regarded as the greatest, most celebrated, and most powerful pharaoh of the New Kingdom, hence the nickname Ramses the Great. His successors and later Egyptians would also call him the Great Ancestor. After having participated in his father's military campaigns to Canaan, Ramses would lead several military expeditions into the region while he was the ruler, all hoping to reassert Egyptian control, then dominance over the region. Essentially, he went after the Hittites. Stick a pin in the Syrian campaigns. I'll circle back to them in a minute. He didn't stop in their northeast territory. He also ventured south to Nubia, quelling several Nubian rebellions. Again. Becoming a great pharaoh did not entail just military success, though. There also needed to be internal progress. Early in his reign, he focused these efforts on the construction of cities, temples, and monuments. He would establish the city of Pi-Ramses in the Nile Delta, this city becoming his new capital along with a military center. Keep in mind, though, that this was not a brand spanking new city. It was a summer retreat for his father, Seti, and may have been founded by his grandfather, Ramses I, before he was even pharaoh, while he served under Horemheb. Ramses II would use it as a base of operations for his military campaigns to the Levant and Syria. During his reign, he grew the military to over 100,000 warriors, a number that would be impressive today. At that time, it was outright scary, and a force of this size needed to be equipped. So, in the burgeoning city, he would build weapons factories, at least the second millennia BC version of a factory. Legend has it that the city of Pi-Ramses could produce 1,000 weapons, such as spears and swords, in a week, 700 shields in the same time period, along with 125 chariots, and with soldiers and weapons came the Egyptian ability to defend its borders, then expand the empire. During his second year of rule, Ramses defeated the Sheridan Sea Pirates. These seafaring warriors were possibly Akkadian, but they may also have been the forerunners of the looming sea peoples. Either way, at the time, wreaking havoc, as pirates often do. In their case, their havoc was focused on routes along Egypt's Mediterranean coast. The typical tactic was to attack vessels plying the sea on merchant voyages to Egypt. The Sheridan people probably came from the coast of what is today Turkey, or maybe southwest Anatolia, or perhaps, less likely, 
from the island of Sardinia, which is off the west coast of what is today Italy. Ramsey's successful tactic was to position troops and ships at strategic points along the coast and lay in wait, setting a trap. His force would patiently allow the pirates to attack their prey. When such an attack had commenced, the trap was sprung. His navy would launch a surprise counterattack and engage in an ocean battle, typically capturing all of the attacking force in a single action. It seems that the greatest of these battles was near where the Nile empties into the Mediterranean. In this case, the Egyptians not only defeated the Sheridan, but also, possibly, the Laka from Anatolia and the Shekalash from parts unknown. Then something strange appears to have happened. The two militaries integrated. Not long after this great battle, Egyptian art shows many Sheridan soldiers as members of the pharaoh's personal bodyguards. They are distinguishable by their horned helmets with a sort of ball projecting from the middle. They are also sporting round shields and a very specific sword. And these seafaring warriors, wherever they hail from, would stick around for a while, as they are also present in depictions from the Battle of Kadesh which was his next stop. In what was probably his fourth year, Ramsey sent an expedition to Canaan in Syria, and this expedition proved fruitful. As he defeated the Canaanite cities, he would typically plunder their rulers and people for anything of value. But that's not all he did. He also captured their princes and sent them back to Egypt as prisoners hearkening back to the same tactic used by his predecessor, Thutmos III, who ruled about 200 years earlier. Like Thutmose, Ramses knew that by holding the children of the Canaanite leaders as personal prisoners, the subject kings would remain loyal and pay their required tributes. These tributes were usually an annual payment, but could be more frequent. In his fifth year, he would again lead an expedition to Syria, this time engaging the Hittites in the now legendary Battle of Kadesh. The Pharaoh wanted a victory against the Hittites for several reasons. First, he needed a buffer between his enemies and the Egyptian territory in Canaan. Next, the Hittites, while they had recently waned in power, were showing signs of an impending resurgence. Also, his ego needed to know that he was at least as powerful as his father Seti who a decade or so before had defeated the Hittites at Kadesh, with Ramses there witnessing the victory. Of course, for dear dead dad, the victory was short-lived, with the city reverting back to his enemies almost immediately after his departure for Egypt. Which brings up probably the greatest reason for a desired victory at that specific city. Revenge, coupled with redemption. In the battle, Ramsey's forces fell for a surprise Hittite ambush, where they were, surprisingly, outnumbered. But the Egyptians managed to counterattack and then soundly defeated the Hittites, to the point that the Hittites abandoned their chariots and swam the Orontes River to reach safety within the city walls. Typically, with the enemy contained within a walled city, you would expect a siege. But in this case, Ramses knew he did not have the supplies to sustain an extended siege, 
So he returned to Egypt, and that was the Battle of Kadesh. At that time, Egypt controlled Canaan, and the Hittites held power over Syria. The native Canaanite leaders grew weary of the Egyptians, and with the encouragement of the Hittites, they began localized revolts against Ramses and the Egyptians. So, in his seventh year, Ramses would return to the region to battle the local leaders, and by extension, the Hittites. This time, he divided his army into two forces, one led by his son, Amun Herkaish. This regiment pursued the Shasu tribes across the Negev to as far as the Dead Sea. In the process, he captured Edom Seir and Moab. The other force, led by Ramses himself, attacked Jerusalem and Jericho. He would then arrive at Moab, where he met up with his son. The reunited army then marched to Hezbon, Damascus, and Kumidi. They would eventually capture the territory near Damascus. The entire campaign re-established Egypt's control of the region. Ramses had similar success in the years that followed, continuing to expand his control over Canaan and Syria, to the point that the territory grew to a size that rivaled that of Thutmose III. During this time, Ramses, and therefore Egypt, benefited from internal Hittite strife. The Hittites deposed a leader, whose name I was tempted to spare you, but it's really fun to pronounce. A rarity for this native English speaker, especially when covering ancient history. Anyway, his name was Mersili III. Some sources list him as a king, but given the complete story, it seems he was more of a prince or some other high-ranking royal. After being driven from power, he fled to Egypt, the enemy of his homeland. Apparently, Mersili was plotting to overthrow his uncle, who was the king. This king, Hattusili III, when he learned of his nephew's location, demanded Ramses extradite him back to Hattai. Ramses pleaded ignorance of the nephew's location, and the incident spiraled towards war. But they did not end up fighting. Instead, Ramses and the Hittite leader would sign a peace agreement in 1258 BC, ending the hostilities between the two empires. The accord is thought of as the earliest known peace treaty in world history. There's no mention of what happened to the nephew, though. As for the treaty, it, along with other documents, laid out the boundaries between the two countries. Several Phoenician coastal towns remained under Egyptian control. Also, the port of Sumer, which is north of Byblos, is mentioned as the northernmost town controlled by Egypt. And with the inking of signatures on the treaty, there were no further Egyptian military campaigns in the Levant. In fact, when the king of Mira in Anatolia attempted to involve Ramses in hostilities against the Hittites, Ramses responded with support of the Hittites. The Hittites would extend similar courtesies towards the Egyptians in their conflicts with various other regional kingdoms. During his reign, Ramses would maintain fortifications along the Egyptian Mediterranean coast as far west as about Zewet Um El Rakhum. Today, this location is in Egypt, about 80 miles or 130 kilometers east of the border with Libya. And in his time, Ramses would constantly battle the Libyans, 
in their various invasion or maybe just marauding parties. Either way, similar to the Nubians, they would always fall to the Egyptians, again and again. And that's about as much of a summary of his military and international diplomatic history as is necessary to understand the context of the Egyptians found in the beginning of the Old Testament. There's still much more to cover with Ramses, especially what was going on within the boundaries of the Egyptian Empire, but that will have to wait until next week. Be sure to join me then. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.